this day. And um, my grandmother had a couch like this when uh, when I was <laughs> when I was growing up. Oh, hey, um, I just want to reiterate what Adam was saying just for a second, um, because I personally receive emails from people within the church who receive those gifts. And if you look at the swap wall back there, look at the right hand side. That's where we put all of the gifts up for the people of our church, the missionaries, and they were wiped out. I don't think I've ever seen that happen before, where every single one was taken off the swap wall. And, uh, and, and I had people basically emailing me this week and saying that we would not have had, uh, we would have had Christmas, but we had no way to afford the gifts this year. And because of you, we're able to have a Christmas that the kids will be excited about. And we know it's not all about gifts, but um, when people can't afford it and they're really struggling and to be able to take every single gift that was on that board and fulfill the needs of the families, we gave them food. Obviously, we gave them some cards that they can go to Kroger and get more food to fill in what we weren't able to give them. And then every single need that was on that list was taken um, and it truly impacted people's lives. I, you know, it's hard because you can't get people up here to, to say, hey, I'm one of those families because we don't want to do that. But at the same time, we've always wanted to make sure that we take care of the people within the church first and foremost. We impact people's lives all around the world. But first and foremost, we want to impact the lives of the people right here at Grace Chapel. And you honestly, like Adam said, you did that this year. And I mean to the point of tears. There were some families from the school. The school asked us to take care of a few families. We were able to take care of all their needs. And people came in, were literally crying when they saw what they, because I think they were expecting maybe a few things on their list, but we got everything on everyone's list. And, and to me, um, that's the true spirit of giving. I really appreciate it. They really appreciate it. So I just wanted to say that as well, because as I'm reading those emails, I thought, how can I, how can I get across the emotion that people have for the impact that you made on their lives? So when you give like that, don't think it doesn't matter. It really matters. And these people's lives have been changed, completely changed. I'm excited also uh, in the next couple of weeks. Remember how we, we raised about seven or eight thousand dollars to build a borehole and bought all those trees from the swap wall. I have pictures of that five acres that we had given that woman with the, they have holes in the ground. They're all dug like a couple of hundred big and it's hard to dig holes this time of year in Nigeria. Let me tell you, I tried it. Um, very hard. They dug all the holes. They put the borehole in uh, for the water for her. She's going to be moving on that property and starting that business. And I have pictures. I'm going to bring them in the next couple weeks and show you because that's truly dynamic. We're changing people's lives uh, all around the world. And I want to keep you up to date on what the resources are doing. Christmas Eve, every year on Christmas Eve, we do one special gift and people don't have to give. We just have like a, you know, we have the offering boxes. Anything that comes in that, that night goes to a special project. This year, because they're doing so well in Nigeria with all the money that we're giving them, because they're living up to their end of the bargain, if you will, and investing that money, that woman decided she's going to give 40% of her profits from her business to back-to-back Nigeria to invest in the lives of orphans there. We didn't make her do that. She chose to do that. That, my friends, is extremely exciting. And now we have a chicken. We have a large chicken coop. It's very big. And we had a chicken co-op going, and that died, you know, different reasons. But uh, one of the people that was, the person that was running it left. But we're going to reignite that, get that started all over again. So that's what we're going to give that money toward on Christmas Eve. We're going to start that chicken co-op again. That impacts so many people's lives. 
so many people's lives. And that's something else we're going to do. And we'll get you a picture for that, too. All right. So Ravi Zacharias wrote this. What happens at Christmas is a paradigm shift and an essential redefinition of all of reality, origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Christmas redefines everything. It redefines everything. There, is, there are miracles at Christmas that change our lives. If we, would just be, if we would just see them, if we would just open up our eyes and open up our hearts and actually see them. There are miracles all around us. I remember when I was growing up, I was very young, and we lived at this point in, we were moving around, moving around, we lived in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. My grandparents bought this, uh, this kind of hotel house called the Hazel Dean. And the Hazel Dean was a place where people would come for vacation and they would stay in the rooms. It was a three-story house. People vacationed there for years. Grandparents bought it. My mother and I moved there. Um, we lived there for probably a couple of years before we moved to uh, New York. And, um, and I remember my grandfather, who um, the story ends well with my grandfather, but all through my life, it wasn't very good. He was a very verbally abusive, obnoxious man uh, who caused me a lot of grief growing up. Let me tell you the end of the story since I said that. My grandfather ended up dying of cancer, but uh, the last few years of his life, we, we really we really be able to talk to each other on a different level. I became a pastor, um, and I was able to sit down and talk to him about the Lord. Uh, I was able to lead him to Christ. He was baptized, I baptized him in the hospital. And while he was dying, uh, I was able to, and this sounds maybe, well, that doesn't sound very good, but I was able to clean the spit off of his face as he was dying. I was able to serve him, and we were able to connect on that level. So I have only fond memories of my grandfather now. Like, I don't, I don't worry about these other things. The story is only to tell you my experience. But I was in, we were in the Hazel Dean, and that was where we lived. And, and so I was doing my homework. I was very young, and my grandfather was there during the day while my mother worked. And he would oversee me while I was doing my homework. And he had this way, this method of uh, helping you with your homework, that if you got something wrong or if you didn't do it fast enough, there was this kind of impatient, aggressive response. So you can imagine being very little and having this adult standing over top of you, if you will, and you're more worried about what he's going to do if you don't get it right or if you don't do it fast enough than what you're supposed to be concentrating on. I didn't get a lot accomplished with him as a tutor. I didn't get a lot accomplished when he was watching me do my homework or when he was trying to teach me something when it came to, you know, English or, or math or whatever else. Contrast that with a teacher I had, though, when I was in school. She was amazing. She had a different method to teach you. When she was teaching you how to read, I remember this. I remember sitting across from her one point at a desk and she would take M&Ms and she would have M&Ms on her side of the table. And any time she taught you a new word, how to spell it or how to read it or whatever else, if you got it right, she would slip you a few M&Ms. I would kill for those M&Ms. Okay. And, I, and she, I, she, she would, if I got the sentence right, she'd give me M&Ms. And it was only one or two M&Ms at a time. But you, your entire time, you're staring across at the table, fixated on the M&Ms. And you're, you're trying, your brain is like firing. You've got to get this right. You've got to get this right because of M&M's. M- and M&M's help you learn. They add sugar, okay, to your brain. And it fires faster. And the faster more M&M's you get, the smarter you become in that situation. She had a different method to teaching. 
I learned so much. I wish I could remember this woman's name. I would love to call her or email her or Facebook or something and say, you know what? You impacted my life by your, by your unorthodox teaching method. What a contrast. What a difference. We've been in a series called Miracle Moments. And one of the miracles of Christmas is the miracle of the method. It is the miracle of God's method. The Bible tells us that God's method is very difficult for us to understand. It's very difficult sometimes for us to grasp. The Bible tells us that it's beyond, if you will, our comprehension in in, in many areas. Beyond our comprehension. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 11 in verse 33. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. His method is beyond our understanding. Many times it's beyond our understanding. Honestly, honestly, if you think about it, God's methods throughout history were very unorthodox, weren't they? Think about this. They were so, think about the Gideon and the battle with the Midianites. Just go back and read that, right? How about if you're younger here, you know, you know, uh, the, you know, Joshua, right? And the battle of Jericho. Think about how unorthodox the battle of Jericho was. You march around the walls, you blow your trumpets, the wall comes crumbling down. Show me that in American history, anywhere else in history. Our God is an unorthodox God. He's completely, his methods are beyond our understanding sometimes. And I would say much of the time, if you were writing the story that we're talking about, Jesus' birth, if you were writing the story of redemption, if you will, I guarantee you would not have written it the way God did. I can guarantee you. You think about the, this, the whole story of Jesus' birth and then his, his death and his resurrection. We would not have written it the way God did. It, it, was, it was, in one sense, it was, it was totally supernatural, but it was also very natural, if that makes sense. Jesus Christ, born in a very simple place, it was very, very simple. He came into the world as a helpless, defenseless baby. God the Son chose to be born to poor, humble parents. I was thinking about that as well this week. I thought about it before, but it kind of jumped in my mind. I thought, you know, Jesus is the only one who got to choose his parents. Right? Fully God and fully man. God the Son chose to be born to poor and humble parents. If, if you think about it, if we were to write the story of Jesus' birth, if we were to kind of, if it was our responsibility to write that story, again, I tell you, we would not have written it the way God did. We would have Jesus born in a palace. He'd be born in a palace and, and, and the, the onlookers would be rich and powerful people. Those are the people that would adore him. Those are the ones who would be looking over and adoring him. It would be those who are rich, those who are powerful. And let me say there is absolutely nothing wrong with being rich and powerful. Absolutely nothing wrong with it whatsoever. But in the world's eyes, if the world was going to tell the story... The world would write it this way. Jesus Christ was born to a king and a queen in an amazing palace surrounded by rich, powerful, adoring onlookers. 
He would not, they would not write that those who looked upon him were animals and shepherds. We'll get into that next week, shepherds, okay? Shepherds are at the low rung of the ladder in this culture. So who is Jesus over, what is, who is adoring him? Shepherds and animals. His parents had no power and no influence in the world's eyes. They had, they had none, none of that. They were plain, ordinary, virtually unknown people. They were not popular. People did not know who Mary and Joseph really were, except the people in their own immediate family and some of their neighbors. But they were chosen to be the parents of Jesus Christ. They were chosen by God to be his parents. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's methods are not our methods. And sometimes we don't like that. Sometimes we're frustrated by that because we don't understand how God seems to work these things out. But God's plan is how many times you said to God, God, this is your plan. You're going through a really challenging, bumpy road in your life. You're saying this is your plan. We don't always see it completely. And that shouldn't surprise us, though. It really shouldn't surprise us how God works, how what God chooses Think about God's choices throughout biblical history. Again, God chose Gideon. You go back and read that in Judges. God chose Gideon. What did Gideon say? Gideon said, this is the, we are the, the, the most insignificant clan, if you will. All right. We're the weakest, is the word they use, weakest clan. And I'm the least in my family. So you're choosing the weakest clan and then you're choosing the least of that clan in this in their in his family that's what Gideon said God chose David a shepherd again I'm going to explain shepherds next week and the 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 cultural implication of all this but God chose a shepherd David not his older brothers to be king completely unorthodox completely out of out of out of the character of the time not out of God's character out of character of the time Joseph Joseph is the second youngest of Jacob's sons, and he is the one that God chose to save his family. Israel, Israel was an insignificant country, an insignificant nation in the eyes of the world. Yet God chose Israel to be his chosen unique people. Bethlehem, really? Bethlehem, this small, unknown, it's really basically un, unimportant place in Israel, becomes the birthplace of the Son of God. The Word became flesh in Bethlehem. This was not, like in our time, if, if you would think of a king or someone wanting to get attention or being born, it would be like New York City, right? A, a big city. Somewhere where there's lots of cameras, you know, it never sleeps and all that kind of the song. It wouldn't be in some unknown city you've never heard of or town you've never heard of. But God's method is different. God is unorthodox in how he does things. God loves to use ordinary, simple people to do the extraordinary. See, God doesn't look at things the way we look at them. 
In, in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, in verse 7, it says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about all the studies you've ever seen about how people choose to who's the good person, who's the bad person, who's the leader, who's the thought. When, when they do studies on you show a person's face, you show another person's face, you show a person's appearance, you show another person's appearance, right? That's how people choose who they're going to follow, who they think the hero is, who they think the nice person is, who they like or they dislike by appearance for the most part. And this is what he says. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things People look at people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Do you see a pattern here? Do you see a pattern here? Now, God uses everyone. God can use every God does. He wants to use everyone. He gives people resources. He gives people what they have. But God uses everyone. But look at the pattern here. God uses simple, ordinary people to do his extraordinary work. Time after time after time after time. Simple, ordinary people to do his extraordinary work. You're sitting here and you're thinking, well, what what, what can I do? What can I do for the kingdom of God? I have no power. I have no influence. I have no resources. I'm not well known. Who's going to listen to me? Does it really matter? I'm so young. I'm only I'm only six or I'm only eight or I'm only 12 or I'm only a teenager. How can God use me? Listen to me. Listen to what God is saying here. It is a pattern of God to use simple, ordinary, sometimes very young, sometimes very old, all in between. Simple, ordinary people to do his extraordinary work. That's how he does things. It is the, it is the miracle of the method. It is the miracle of how unorthodox our God truly is. That's why we're confused even today. When, when God makes decisions and we're confused about his decisions, we're confused about, about his methods. That's why we're confused even today because we, we sit back and we don't sometimes know the word of God as we should. Because if we truly knew the word of God as we should, as we go through personally, because this is all personal. As we go through this personally, we go through the rocky points in our lives. We can look back and say, wait, that, that's how God works. God works through all the circumstances of our lives. God is weaving together all all these things in our lives to, to, to bring about his will for our lives and his kingdom. God uses us, but we get confused by that. We're confused by the methods. We're confused by the decisions. In Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it up here. I want to read it right from here because I want to... Read it a little further. Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. This is what he says. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to a firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And verse 8, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, watching over the flocks by night. There were shepherds. I want you to consider, okay, again, 
who God allowed to be, who God included at the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke says there were shepherds. There were shepherds. Again, low rung on the totem pole here. Shepherds, from an apologetic standpoint, I want you to, apologetics, how to defend your faith, okay? I want you to think about this. If you're trying to convince people to believe something, if you're trying to convince people that what, that what you're saying is true, you don't write this. You say, people say, well, men wrote, men wrote the Bible. People say it all the time. Well, a bunch of men wrote the Bible. A bunch of men wrote. I'm going to explain something to you. Culturally, okay, when the Bible was written, you don't, if you want to make your point, if you want to get a point across, if you want someone to believe you, you don't write this. Here's what you write. Here's what you basically write. Instead of, instead of Jesus being born and there being shepherds there adoring him, what you basically, what you don't have here is you don't think about it. You don't have kings and queens. You don't have the religious establishment. You don't have military, military powers there, military leadership. None of those are, that's not what the Bible says. Who's there right the birth. Who did God invite? Shepherds. He chose simple shepherds to unveil, to, to unveil his plan of redemption, to, re, to unveil his plan of salvation. The more you think about that, the more incredible that story actually becomes. The more the method, the miracle of the method, the more significance that truly takes on. He uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary tasks. I'm going to think, I want you to think about something else. Think about the, the, birth, the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus lives his life. And then now he's going to go to the cross. Jesus, Think about Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus is resurrected. Who are the first people that he appears to? Women. Okay. Again, in God's eyes, women and men equal. Okay. Equal in God's eyes. Culturally, not at all. Okay. If you're writing this, if you're just writing this and you want someone to believe you, your religion, you're trying to, you're trying to trick people, you're trying to coerce people, you're trying, whatever the case may be, you don't write, the, you don't write that Jesus was born in a, and he was placed in a manger, okay? Surrounded by animals and then some low life shepherds come along, okay? Lower rung of the cultural, you know, status here. They're there and they're going to be the ones, the shepherds are going to be the ones to, to, to reveal God's plan of redemption, salvation to the world. That's a great idea. That's a great plan culturally. Then at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, let's double down on this. Now when Jesus appears, who does he appear to first? He appears to women culturally in court. Their testimony wouldn't even hold up in court. So if you were making something up, if you were trying to trick people into believing something, you wouldn't write either one of those things. But in God's eyes, the shepherds were men, humble men. They were equal with everyone else. In God's eyes, men and women aren't lesser. They're not lower than men. They're equal with. So even though the culture would have written it one way, God did what God did, he told the truth. Who were the first ones to see? Who were the first ones to, he, that Jesus appeared before? They were women. That was not the norm. That was completely unorthodox. When Jesus picked his disciples, his leaders, who were going to take the message, the gospel, into the world, who did he choose? 
Who did he choose? For the most part, he chose simple people. Very simple people. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God's methods haven't changed. God still uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things to build his kingdom. That is good news for us. God uses the rich and the powerful who love him to influence culture, to make a difference in the world. He uses them. Because they're humble. You can be rich and you can be powerful and you can be famous and you can be humble and God will use you. You can be poor and, and you, 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 could be, you could be someone that no one's ever heard of. You could be a simple person. You don't have to be flamboyant and outgoing. and all. You don't have to be any of those things. But if you have a humble spirit and you want to be used by God, God wants to use you. He'll use anyone And here's the amazing thing. This is what it says at the end. Listen to this. To nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God loves to use people who give him the glory. God loves to use those people. So that when when something happens, they say, wait, I grew up with that person. I know that person. How could they have accomplished that? How could they live their lives in that way? And the only answer is, Something powerful must be working in that person's life. Something dynamic must be going on in that person's life. See, in God's economy, listen to this. In God's economy, availability far outweighs ability. In God's economy, availability and heart far outweigh ability and talent. The way God sees things. Why? Because he does it. He's going to work through you. So whether you're the youngest person in the room or the oldest person in the room or the poorest person in the room or the richest person in the room or the most famous person in the room or no one's ever heard of you, God can still use you in a powerful, powerful way. See, God uses the simplest vessels to accomplish sometimes his greatest tasks, his greatest work. It was Mary, a teenager, and Joseph, a simple man who were chosen to witness the greatest miracle in the history of the world. God becomes flesh. Think about that. God in the flesh. They were chosen, a teenager and a very simple man, to witness the greatest event, the greatest miracle in the history of the universe. God becoming flesh. God is unorthodox. God's methods, we don't understand them, but they're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close off with this, and I've used this analogy before, but I really want to use it again because it makes the point. You know, we, if, if you think about your life as a tapestry, okay, being woven together by God, sometimes we get so frustrated because we're in a season of our lives and we don't recognize what God is doing in our lives, and so we become frustrated because we can really only see the back of the tapestry, most of, for most of our lives, we don't get a glimpse of the front. If you look at the left, you kind of can tell. You see the string hanging down, but you can. So sometimes we, we can kind of tell what's going on. 
We get a feel for it. But we can see that we only see the back of the tapestry, what's happening in our lives. And it becomes very frustrating for us because we don't see the whole picture. We don't see the real picture of what's going on in our lives. We can't. Our our minds are not God's minds. We can't understand it all. But one day we will finally be able to see that picture from the front. And how amazing we can see that picture from the front and we will be able to see God's work of art. That God is weaving together all the good times, all the challenges, all the difficulties, all the joys, all the physical ailments we've had, all of everything. He will work all these things together for us. And we will be able to see the front of the tapestry and all that God is doing. God works in unorthodox ways. God's methods are not our methods. God's decisions are not our decisions. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. But I can tell you this one thing. You need to trust him. You need to continue to trust him even though you don't understand it all. It's like that tapestry. You can't see what God is doing in your life. But he's taken all the seasons of your life. He's taken all the struggles and all the joys and all the happiness and all the sorrow. He's taken it all and he's weaving it into a tapestry. A whole picture. And one day you'll be able to see the front of the picture and it'll be like that side on the right hand side. You'll be able to see it all. But right now, my friends, we need to trust him. We need to recognize that our thoughts are not his thoughts. In Romans 8, 28, it tells us, and we know that in all, listen to this, listen to this. And we know that in all things, not the good things, not just the wonderful things, not when we just feel like we're just being blessed, 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 and we get all kinds of resources and we get everything our way. He says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We need to trust him even when we don't understand. The miracle of the moment is the miracle that God has chosen ordinary people Simple, ordinary people to do extraordinary things to further his kingdom. That is the miracle of the moment. Guys, we can't miss this. We can't miss it. We can't miss this time. We can't get so caught up. And I'm not going to criticize and go, oh, so commercialized. Don't, let's, don't worry about that. While we're giving our gifts and receiving our gifts and enjoying our family and eating turkey and celebrating and watching football, they're all good things. But don't miss the miracle of the message. Don't miss the miracle of the method. Don't miss the miracle of the moment. We talked about these things. Don't miss the miracles. Don't miss the miracles of what this Christmas season is truly all about. That God in his great wisdom and his intense love for you and for me sent his son as a defenseless, helpless baby surrounded by people that you and I would never have considered to be a part of that equation. But you know what? In a sense, all of us fall into that category. But he loves his people that much. He believes in all of us that much. doesn't matter what your background is. doesn't matter what you've been through in your life. doesn't matter if you're born on the right side of the tracks or the wrong side of the tracks. It doesn't matter. We all have one thing in common. That we know Jesus Christ, if we know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, that God has a purpose for each of our lives, for every single one of us. He has a purpose for our lives. And he wants to use us in a very unique way to impact this world for his kingdom. 
All we need to do is be open to his method. All we need to do is be open and not get overwhelmed when things aren't going our way and not curse God when things don't just go the way you planned. You're only seeing the back of the tapestry. Just wait. Be patient. Soon you'll see it for what it really is. He will weave all, all the seasons of your life together for his glory to change the world through you and through those around you. We just need to be ready for the miracle of his method. We need to be aware of it. We need to, we need to, to take it in and own that. The message, the method, the moment, all those things. Let's not forget them. And let's celebrate them this morning as we take communion. We're a family. And I want to celebrate this as a family. I want to stop. The Bible wants us to stop and just reflect on who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for for each of us. Wherever we come from, whatever our background, Jesus Christ loves you enough. You know, I love this. You're no more than a forgiven sinner, but you're nothing less than someone Jesus died for. You, you personally, Jesus gave his life for you. So let's celebrate his birth and let's celebrate his life. Let's celebrate what he's done for us. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23, I'm going to read that to you. And after I'm done reading, I'm going to pray for both the cup and for the body, the bread. After I'm finished praying for the body and for the the blood, the cup, after that, you can get up from your seat. You can go back and you can take the cup and you can take the bread. You can just sit back down here or you can come to the front and you can pray. Whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to do. But when I'm finished praying, you don't have to wait for anybody else. Just go receive that. Come back here. If you don't belong to our church, it doesn't matter. If you know Jesus Christ, you're welcome to take this with us. If you're younger and you know Christ, you can take it. If you're older and you know Christ, you can take it as long as you have that relationship with Jesus Christ. You are welcome to take this with us. So let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Before I pray, here's what what God is saying. If If you've got some issues in your life right now, you have some sin in your life, you haven't confessed, Take some time this morning to confess it. Ask God to forgive you. Just ask God to forgive you. Don't let your emotions stop you from taking communion. Bow your heads. Ask God to forgive you for whatever sins you have not confessed already. And then take communion. It's not a guilt trip. It's a God who loves us and says, I'm here waiting for you. And he will receive your repentance. He will make you whole through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. He will make you whole. And we can take it together. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for this body, your son's body, which was given to us. That hung on a cross. 
that we can have a relationship with you. We thank you, Lord God, that we can offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you this morning. May this be our spiritual act of worship. Father, we thank you for the cup, which symbolizes your blood. We thank you for the shed blood on the cross that because of what you did on the cross by shedding that blood, Lord God, we can enter into the Holy of Holies. We can come to you in prayer. We can stand before you, Lord God, and ask for forgiveness and you will give it to us. So thank you for the blood that was shed for each one of us. That we could have that intimate relationship with you. God, we love you. We praise you. We want to remember, Lord God, we want to remember you. We want to remember the miracle of the moment of that birth. We want to remember the message, the miracle, the message, Lord God, that we can have salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. We want to remember the miracle, the method, Lord God, that you can use us that you use ordinary, simple, ordinary people to do your extraordinary work. That you brought the redemption, you brought salvation, the message of salvation through simple people who were open to be used by you. May we be open as we take communion, Lord. May we think about this, that we want to be open to be used by you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. As the Spirit leads, you can get up and receive the bread and the cup. Our gracious God, our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just come before you with humble hearts, asking, Lord God, that you would use us wherever we find ourselves in our lives right now, Lord God. We pray that you would use us. We submit ourselves to the miracle of your method. We're excited about the fact that we worship an unorthodox God who does things the way he chooses to do them and uses people the way he chooses to use them. And God, we're grateful for that. Knowing and anticipating how you're going to use our personal lives to impact your kingdom, this world, with the love of your son, Jesus Christ in whose blessed and holy name we pray. Amen. Merry Christmas. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday night at 5.